Hello and welcome to another episode of the Pitch Life Podcast. A few weeks ago, we debated Manchester City's transgressions over the past 14 years and what could lead, potentially lead, to the fall of one of football's greatest dynasties of this century. This week, we're going to, you know, just casually like stroll on over just four miles down the road and look at uh, how some fresh leadership and a potentially generous influx of new owner money could really, really shake things up and down the storied corridors of uh, Old Trafford. Or maybe not, who knows, you know, time will tell. This season, they're, they're, things are already going according to track. They, they look set to meet this season's objectives. They won the Carabao Cup. They look well on their way back up, uh, you know, to the, to the highest point of English football. And yeah, I think there's a lot for Manchester United fans to be happy about. But let me, let me start off by asking you a really quick question, all right? Sir Alex Ferguson, when he was uh, the manager, he famously referred to Manchester City as the noisy neighbors. Given everything that's happened over the past decade, given how United have, you know, sort of uh, slumped when it comes to, you know, actually being dominant, and Manchester City, on the other hand, have just gone on to win Premier League after Premier League, uh, you know, won everything except the Champions League. Do you think now United are the noisy neighbours, or do you just think that City keep proving Sir Alex Ferguson right season after season? I don't think it's noisy neighbours as much as you think about it as loud and proud. Um, so City have gone about the last 10 years professionally building up an ironclad legacy, and I feel it's more like loud and proud neighbors now. And, and, and that noise from the noisiness is becoming deafening. So Man United have a long way to go before they actually creep up to City. But you can't, you can't deny that they are on the right track today. I mean, I think the biggest thing that we will end up discussing today and you know, probably the biggest change that has happened at Manchester United over the past few seasons is they've gotten in a, a manager who is capable and a manager who is being back appropriately. Now... Uh, if, if, if it's only if you've been living under a rock that you know, you know, like you probably don't know then that Eric Ten Hag is the ma- manager that I'm talking about. But before this, they were linked with a, a whole host of managers, Eric Ten Hag, Pochettino, Zidane, Luis Enrique, pretty much anyone who had ever done anything significant in football, they, they were linked with the United job. For the longest time, everyone thought Pochettino was going to be the one who gets the job, but it ended up being Eric Ten Hag. And I think up until now, even though it's just been like, you know, six, maybe seven, seven months, there, I don't think there are going to be any regrets about, you know, their decision. The season that they're having right now, you know, there's always talk of like a potential quadruple, which is, in my opinion, very, very uh, unlikely. If you, if you were to read, you know, stuff on social media, you'd see one of the things uh, c- consistently being said is that he's the best manager that they've had in the post-Ferguson era. Right. I don't know how much I agree with that. I don't know if we're being a bit disrespectful to Louis van Gaal and Jose Mourinho, who who have achieved a lot in football, just not at Manchester United. Do you agree? Look, um, no disrespect to Mourinho or van Gaal. They they won their share of trophy or trophies there, and and they've been impressive in short stints. But let's face it, when Eric Ten Hag first arrived, we, we all had our doubts, right? I mean, being a, whatever, 78-time champion in the Dutch league does not guarantee you anything, um, much less instant success in England. We've all been proven, well, most of us at least have been proven wrong. 
Um, he's transformed the culture of the club. He's instilled that winning mentality, as you said. And in recent results, I think other than that 7-0 drubbing to Liverpool, he essentially ended their six-year trophy drought, right? By winning the Carabao Cup and on the road to lifting potentially two more trophies, likely two more trophies, you know, uh, improbably three more. And they're partying almost like it's 1999 and, uh, you know, the Sir Alex Ferguson peak days. I was thinking about this, actually. So Ferguson's first trophy at United was the FA Cup in 1990. And that came after a five-year barren spell where United hadn't won a thing. And well, the rest is history for that era, at least, right, where he ended up winning 25-30 titles on the bounce, becoming the most dominant team in English football. So maybe this is a sign, maybe this is the, you know, the rise of the Phoenix again. Off the pitch, you know, if, you, if you've listened to interviews from Man United players, from the manager, there's sort of that bullish mentality which is coming back, right? We, uh, sort of like a, this is just the start, we are going to be a winning machine. I think coming in, the main expectation for this season was that, you know, they'd qualify for the Champions League because they kind of have been in and out of uh, Champions League qualification for the past few seasons. And given how they're playing this season, given their position in the table as well, I think I think they will very easily, uh, you know, complete that objective, barring, barring a, a spectacular collapse, you know, the equivalent of a 7-0, but for your entire season. The other two competitions that they're in, though, right... FA Cup, uh, they've already won the Carabao Cup, we said that. But the FA Cup and the Europa League, now those are going to be pretty challenging. I feel like they could potentially make things tricky for United as far as Champions League qualification is concerned. Now, of course, if they win the Europa League, then it's you know not an issue. Do you expect that to happen or do you just think that they're just going to steamroll their way to Champions League qualification, irrespective of the other two tournaments? I think I think it's tricky. Some would say... There is an easy path now if you consider what's happening at Spurs, right? And the kind of absolute implosion that's happening there. Uh, you would think that clears up a path for United to push ahead and at least maintain third or fourth. But I don't see it as being absolutely straightforward. I think they still need to rely on the Europa League or fight on all fronts, as they say. Now that Arsenal are out of the Europa League, I think their path there or their qualification through winning the competition becomes a bit less trickier than actually trying to fight within the Premier League. You know, you mentioned Spurs and that that made me take a look at the league table really quickly. It They, they are sitting comfortably in third place, Manchester United, with two games in hands. They're on 50 points. But when you look at the, the pack that's chasing them, they're not that far behind. I mean, Spurs are just a point behind, but they've played two games more, which sucks. Newcastle, on the other hand, are just three points behind, having played the same number of games. So Newcastle could definitely still continue to challenge United for a top four place. Sixth and seventh is Liverpool and Brighton. They've played like 26 and 25 games, but they're both on 42 points. It might not actually be that easy for Manchester United. That's how I feel about it, especially as more and more focus shifts to the Europa League. Because I feel like at, at some point they're going to have this. We either try to focus on getting Champions League qualification by winning the Europa League, which is, you know, a knockout tournament. Anything could happen. You have no control over it. Or you sort of sacrifice the Europa League a little bit in favor of cementing your position in the Premier League. Now, that's just how I look at it. I don't know how much you agree with what I just said. 
the chasing pack in the Premier League is getting harder and harder to fend off. And it's not going to be a straightforward run to the finish. They're a cup team, as we've seen. They're doing well in the FA Cup. They're doing well. Uh, they've they've won the League Cup, essentially, right? So I can't see why they can't go all the way in the Europa League. Um, Eric Ten Hag, as a manager, even when he was at Ajax, uh, did his best work in the Champions League. Obviously, the Dutch League was a guarantee anyway, right? Uh, but he came to life and really, really uh, fascinated everyone with his um, uh, giant killing attitude in the in the Champions League. So I would really expect him to prioritize winning in Europe. Yeah, and it's you know it's like you said that he's come in and instilled this whole uh, you know the giant killing mentality is now at uh, Manchester United. Only you know you won't call it a giant killing you know, mentality because it's Manchester United. But they've got this swagger, they've got this belief that, like you said, it's just the beginning. And I, I think a good deal of that has to do with the people that they've brought in and the people that they've sent out. Now, one of the things that we've seen is Eric Ten Hag has come in, he's made demands of the sort of players that he needs, and the United board somehow have managed to get those deals done, which is something that we didn't see for Ole. I don't remember that being the case for uh, Mourinho. And even under Louis Van Gaal, I think it was more like the board wanted to sign this player, so they did, irrespective of whether Van Gaal wanted them or not. So it seems like the club has sort of aligned on a strategy, or at the very least, they've decided to back the manager the way he should be. I feel like that is one of the biggest changes at United that's sort of, you know, aiding them in their quest for glory again this season. Now, when you look at the players in question, like there are a few former Ajax players, right? They got an Anthony, they got an Lissandro Martinez, who've, uh, I feel like, had a, a mixed bag of success so far. I don't think Anthony has been good as people make him out to be. Martinez has been good. But in my opinion, the biggest signing was Casemiro. I think it's safe to say that he is the biggest one. I don't know if you're going to challenge me on that and say something like, no, it's got to be Ericsson because Ericsson has also, you know, played his part. But we knew United were just, you know, a couple of good signings away from challenging again. They never were in a position where they had to do like a complete squad rebuild or something like that. We knew a world-class midfielder was essential and they've got that with Casemiro. Are you surprised that Casemiro came in and settled this quickly or I expected it I think the kind of player that Casemiro is and I do agree he is United's biggest signing this season for the sheer fact that he's a serial winner he's won everything there is to win in the game right they, they, if if there ever was one this is the guy who's your serial winner right this is the guy you want to come in and literally just hit the ground running and he has um and he's really made this team tick and he's 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 in that sort of position defensive midfield where you can really dictate the pace of the game, you can really make sure uh, your your formation is right going going into the final third, and he's really made a massive difference. Anthony, again, I do agree with you on Anthony as well. He hasn't he's he's had sparks of brilliance, but he hasn't looked like the hundred million euro signing that he was. I, right? Yeah, I I don't think you can call him a flop just yet. That's how I feel about him. I'm not calling him a flop. Um, I just think that, and and maybe it's the numbers that is skewing this, right? If you look at him through the lens of the price tag, right, which is a hundred million, I don't think he's worth it, right? Uh, but but imagine United would have paid seventy or eighty, we would have been raving about what a great signing he was, right? For, for the- I don't I don't think so because I I just don't think his output has been enough to justify paying even like. 
50, 60 million for him. So like maybe he's just going to take a little longer than Casemiro will, you know, and, and that just and that true. kind of just shows what a world class player Casemiro is in a way. You know, he's 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 come from Real Madrid, uh, seamlessly fit into a fragmented United side and made them champions uh, domestically in 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 his um, in his first season, um, Christian Eriksen, a very very able signing. I think I think it was a shrewd, a shrewd, shrewd yeah, absolutely, yeah, exactly. a shrewd signing. Obviously, he's been injured for the for the for the recent past, which is which would explain some of United's struggles, right? Uh, and the the quicker they can get him fit, I think the quicker they will go really far in the FA Cup and and potentially even end up winning it even the Europa League. Lisandro had his critics when he first came in. I think he was too short. He was diminutive. He's only played in the Dutch League. How is he going to cope against defenders who are 6'3", 6'4", in the Premier League? I think he's done, he do, he's done decently well. I personally think that Martinez is you know, a, a very big reason on why their defense is doing better than it has in the previous seasons, simply because he comes in with this really bullish mentality. And he fights for every every single ball. I mean, we we saw this in like the first couple of games that he played for United. He was going in with really fierce tackles. He was not he was not you know hiding from pressure. He he was just going all out, and that's something that we haven't seen a United defense do for a really long time. I mean, he is called the butcher of Amsterdam, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, definitely. I mean, let's face it, Harry Maguire, not the fastest player, not the sort of player who will try to head the ball when someone is going to kick it in his face, right? Varane, really talented, really skillful player, not the fastest, but you know he's got a more sort of like calm demeanor, right? Martinez comes in, diving all over the place, heading every single thing, tackling every single person. To me, he's been the reason United's defense has been doing better than it has in previous seasons. I'm glad you mentioned Harry Maguire. Now, this is one of the other reasons why we should think that Eric Ten Hag will be a success at Old Trafford. He's not just brought in the signings he wants, which obviously needs the backing of the club as well, but he's made sure that he sidelined the elements that he doesn't want in the team. He's been sure of what he doesn't want, right? The decision to drop Harry Maguire, both as centre-back as well as club captain, has been incredibly brave right Bold. it was it was an obvious choice for anyone looking you know outsider looking in but it's still a brave choice to make he's revitalized marcus rashford's career right he is a player unrecognizable now um arguably for me one of the best players in europe at the moment on purely on goal scoring form luke shaw one of the best left backs in england but actually came in and and took over maguire's position in central defense and now has become one of the most consistent central defenders as well in the league. So I don't know what sort of stuff he's feeding them for breakfast, but they are players transformed. And on top of that, obviously you've got to you've got to look at the the elephant in the room, which is he. And this is what he deserves his credit for. You know, it, it takes a special leader to deal with someone like Cristiano Ronaldo. It, it takes a special leader to to shun away one of the most influential people on the planet. Come out of that unscathed hats off to Eric Ten Hag he's he's really transformed the club in 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 innumerable different ways and and almost in doing so he's instilled Sir Alex Ferguson's level of principles right an ironclad no one is immune policy 
you know, you either perform or you're out. Take, take for example, Rashford. Like, I just spoke about Rashford being one of the best players in Europe at the moment. But there was this time where he was dropped in the match day squad. I think it was against Southampton. I can't remember what game it was. It was a league game for oversleeping and turning up late for one of the team meetings. He dropped Rashford, who was literally scoring two goals a game for the team. It, it just shows how firm he is in his principles and how bullish he will be to get what he wants out of this team. Like, no, nobody is above the law. Nobody is above the manager or the club. You mentioned Ronaldo, and I'm happy you did because I had a small question about that because I was thinking about it, right? When, when this whole saga was going on, there was, I feel, sort of like a split in the fan base, like some people really backed Ten Hag and they were like, Ten Hag will do the right thing. If he drops Ronaldo, then that's, you know, that's a good thing. It's, it's, the, it's the club above the individual and all of those things. And then there were those who were backing Ronaldo who, you know, they were like, okay, this is one of the greatest of all times. He's won everything, done everything, last season, top scorer, all of those things. Do you think that if Ronaldo hadn't done that interview with Piers Morgan, that Ten Hag would have gotten the backing that he did to deal with Ronaldo the way he did. I think so. The Man United board and the club had bought into this manager. I think he he was brought in because he had proven pedigree of being a winner. I don't think the club would have sacrificed that aspect for an aging 38-year-old who, frankly, even in preseason, contributed nothing or even showed no signs of relenting on his I'm the greatest, fuck everyone else I'm attitude. I'm number one. Right? Yeah. And remember, Eric Ten Hag's first two games, we were all laughing at him. Like, clinically beaten by Brighton on the opening day and then obliterated by Brentford at home. 4-0 it was, and we were Four laughing nil. at yeah. him. So people, people were actually calling him Eric Ten Months rather than Eric Ten Hag. So that was going on in the background of this entire Ronaldo controversy. And knowing how Cristiano Ronaldo is, I... I I doubt it would have... It's just a matter of time until he would have gone on to another talk show with another Piers Morgan and done and, and, and pulled off another controversial, you know, event there. So uh, it's... I feel the club did the right thing and I think they would have backed Eric Ten Hag either way. And now I think they are much better off f- for that. Um, I don't think they would have been in contention for three trophies if Ronaldo would have still been in the team and if Ten Hag would have... I don't know, tried to manage him through the season. Um, I don't think they would have been in the position they are right now. Yeah, and the decision he took means we're now talking about a potential quadruple. Although I think it's safe to say that the Premier League isn't happening because it's it's funny because any time talk of like a Premier League challenge comes in, like, oh, we're just one game away and we will be title contenders and all of that bullshit. It seems like they just end up facing a team and getting absolutely spanked by them. I think... I think before they played Arsenal, it was the same thing. It started up just before the Liverpool game where they got, you know, just destroyed. For the sake of conversation, let's not call it a quadruple anymore. Let's just call it a treble, right? Carabao Cup, done and dusted. FA Cup, still going on. They beat Fulham today. And you've got the Europa League, right? Now, looking quickly at, like, their Carabao Cup victory, do you think that they deserved to be champions or... Did they just have like an incredibly lucky path to the finals? And the reason I bring this up is because when I look at the games that they played, they played them well, no doubt, but they played Aston Villa, they played Burnley, they played Charlton, all three of those games at home. 
Then in the semifinals over two legs, they played Nottingham Forest before they faced Newcastle in the final. Granted, it hasn't been tough in the conventional sense of the word. They haven't had a top-tier team other than Newcastle, if you could count them in the final, right? Um, much less a Premier League opposition, you know, in the in the top three or the top four. But I would argue that this is what makes the cup competitions even harder. I mean, this is this is the magic of the FA Cup and the magic of the Carabao Cup. Like any of these teams can cause a major upset on any night. So I think they've done well to actually get through these tricky hurdles. I mean, Burnley, even though they're they're in the championship, are a well drilled team. They're 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 top of the championship. They're literally dominating uh, under Vincent Company. So again, it's it's not it probably not not as straightforward as a long ball Sean Dyke team. Um, Aston Villa, I think any of those, maybe other than Charlton, maybe um, had a potential to upset United. Definitely Newcastle. I mean, I I was I was actually rooting for Newcastle in the final. I was rooting for Eddie Howe's men to really turn up and and turn the heat. Maybe a two-two at full time, and then and then you never know. You know, you could you could you could win on penalties. But unfortunately, United were much better on the day. But overall, yeah, not the conventionally tough draw, but a tricky one nonetheless. And, you know, it's it's a similar story in the FA Cup when you look at it, because surprisingly or unsurprisingly, I don't know, they've played four games in the FA Cup. All four have been at home. Started with Everton, moved on to Reading, faced West Ham, and then Fulham, all four home games. I mean, the, I know that, you know, upsets are sort of expected in uh, cup competitions, right? But you have to admit that there's been like a spectacular level of luck to play all of these games at home. Yeah, I I, I can't disagree with you on that. I think um, they've they've had a kind draw uh, as well. As as much as I'd like to think any of these teams can upset them, they've had a they've had an easy draw. Um, Everton at home, you know, struggling in the in the Premier League. Reading in the Championship. West Ham, or you know, on the verge of relegation at the moment. Um, and Fulham, who are probably the highest placed team they've played across both competitions, to be honest, they've beaten them as well. So looking ahead, I think in the FA Cup, they this is where they get to the business end and really face their first test. I think Brighton at the Amex Stadium will be a challenge now that we know the draw is out. Uh, Man City instead will play Sheffield United, which should be fairly straightforward. So there is a potential it could be a Manchester Derby final. Also, when I look at the Premier League, I know we've said that they won't win the Premier League, but in terms of like their top four race, it's interesting because they still do have to face some really good competition. They still have to play Brentford, who can surprise people. They play Brighton, you know, the top four challengers. Newcastle, Everton, that's fine. Nottingham Forest, that's fine. Chelsea, you tell me. Uh, they still have to play Spurs uh, with or without Antonio Conte, I guess time will tell. And then the rest are fine. So... Out of the remaining games, it really looks like there are two or three games that are crucial. And if they do that, then yeah, top four, done and dusted as well, I guess. Um, at the beginning of the season, especially how they started the season, um, Eric Ten Hag's only goal was to make top four. Now, potentially, not only could he win a treble, he could make top four on top of that, which which would be just excruciatingly frustrating for all of us, essentially, uh, catching up with United. And I think it really goes to show how quickly expectations can change in the middle of the season. Because it's like you said, when the season started, the only expectation was 
they they wanted top four. Now we're talking about a potential treble, a potential quadruple. It's it's like when you look at Arsenal today. Arsenal are trying to run away with the league. They're they're very well they're positioned to win the league. Yeah, but when they were knocked out of out of the Europa League, a, a good chunk of them were angry that they couldn't go on to win it. When at the start of the season, even their expectations were just we want to finish in the top four. And I think that that sh- that really shows like the progress that they've made under Ten Hag that expectations have changed so quickly over six, seven months. And there is this hunger from the fans to have everything in a good way. I get your point, but I think majority of United fans will be happy with this result. I think I think they've overachieved this season. All I saw was a top four goal and they won a trophy on top of that. Even if they win nothing from here, I think it's it's still would be considered a success. We talked about how far they've fallen behind City. One trophy takes them a step there, and I think it will be viewed as a positive. To be honest, it's it's not been all smooth sailing. I think they still have things to improve on for next season. If you look at um, the fact that they don't have as much depth, like Casemiro is a, is a world-class player, but he does have a tendency to get sent off more often than yeah, not, right? It's, it, it's just the way he plays. It's just his style of play that 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 keeps him on that knife edge between um you know making a clean uh, game-winning tackle versus uh going back and sitting in the dugout um they don't have cover for Varane who 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 seems to get injured more often than not I think Bruno I'm sorry is is Harry Maguire not good enough uh he's never been uh Harry Maguire I doubt will even be at United next season I think and there's obviously, you know, Bruno Fernandes, Jaden Sancho, De Gea, not been at their best. I mean, they've, 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 they've sparkled now and then, but uh, I don't think they've been consistent. I mean, Sancho's just, to be honest, fallen off a cliff. So integrating him back into the team. Some, I've, I've had friends who support United who've said if we get a good price for him, they would want to sell him. Uh, especially with the likes of uh, Pellestri and Garnacho stepping up. I don't think... Sancho's going to find it that easy to uh, get into the starting 11. But unquestionably, I think all of the talk in the summer is going to be around a center forward. As like with Chelsea and uh, other teams in the league, um, they don't have a number nine. Uh, they have a, a Weghorst, if you will, but um, a Weghorst doesn't get That's you much. That's and he's going back. Yeah, yeah, doesn't get you much, right, uh, for, for what you pay. So they, they're going to need a solid 20 goals a season striker, a target man who can, you know, win them the games that are uh, on a knife edge. The, the return of Romelu Lukaku. I hope so. I, 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 <laughs> I really hope so. You can you can actually do a straight swap. Just take Harry Maguire and give them Lukaku. Yeah, wouldn't that wouldn't that be the deal of the century? Think Victor Osimhen is one of the names being floated around from Napoli. You know the the season that he's having, he could easily come in and end up at of, Manchester yeah, City. Absolutely. Uh, on on deadline day, yeah. um, Harry Kane is the most obvious choice, I think, and and someone who's been linked to United several windows. Um, and I I I am a so, bit. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. All right. Harry Kane is going to end up signing another six-year contract at Spurs. I think everyone knows this. I don't know. I don't know. I mean... Can, he is going to. How, I mean... Can w- you be w- that what, dumb? What, I don't know. What is his agent going to do? How will his agent, you know, 
keep up his reputation if he can't get Harry Kane to sign another six-year contract at Spurs. To be honest, I think if he went to United, he'd probably earn even more than he's earning at Spurs because um, uh, Daniel Levy's pretty stingy and United will pay. United under a Qatari owner... Potentially. ...could um, have him earning upwards of 350k uh, a week, right? So, and, and he potentially could be that final piece of the puzzle, which is why I'm, I am a bit concerned. You know, I would, I know Kane would prefer to stay in the Premier League because he has this whole 260 goal record that he wants to beat um, Shearer's. So um, I, I think United would be a good option for him. I would take him at Chelsea in a heartbeat, to be honest, at this point. As long as we can offload Lukaku to United and Kane joins Chelsea, that that would be my dream scenario. But he does look likely that... Can, can, you, can you just imagine the scenes when Harry Kane walks into the uh, Old Trafford uh, dressing room and Christian Eriksen just walks in with his uh, Carabao Cup to sort of, you know, rub it in his face? That's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Potentially, most people on that team. I mean, I mean, um, Garnaccio could come with his, uh, with his, uh, you know, under 19 FA Cup and rub it in his face. Um, so yeah. yeah, most players in that dressing room, most of the reserve team players have more trophies than Harry. Okay, moving on, moving on. I think we've taken enough shots at uh, Spurs. I don't want to take over Antonio Conte's job because he's doing a really, uh, really good, having a really good go at it. The final topic, probably the biggest topic something that has been going on for many, many, many months and in all honesty could be concluded in the next month, right? The potential sale of Manchester United. Now, Glazer out protests and movements and campaigns and all of those things have been going on for many, many, many seasons, I think rightfully so. And now they're actively looking for new owners. Jim Ratcliffe, he's the he's the what, chairman, CEO of, uh, what, what's the group Ineos. called? Ineos, yeah. yeah. And then you've got uh, people from the Qatari royal family who are, you know, trying to make their own way into the Premier League. If you really had to guess, who do you think it would go to? The Qataris are not known to be people who lose out on things they compete in. So I, my money would be on them. Yeah, it, I, I do agree. Like, I, I feel like it, it could very well be them because... I mean, most recently, it's been claimed that they've put in an offer to rid the club of all their debt, which means the first day under Qatari ownership, they're going to be completely debt-free, right? They owe nothing, everything's paid off. And for a football club, that's a fantastic place to start, whether you're happy that it, you know it's coming from Qatari money or not, that's a completely different uh, question altogether. There's no doubt that Eric Ten Hag will then be, you know, armed with like massive, massive funds to put United back on top, and he very well could. With, you know, this whole Qatari ownership thing, there are two big points that I wanted to go over. One is that fans are still incredibly split. With the Qataris taking over Man United, I think they've submitted their second bid this week, um, and it's going to be somewhere in the region of £6 billion. Uh, is what I hear. And all parties, including the Qataris, are willing to overpay for the club. So essentially, United stand to become one of the crown jewels in the whole of sports, not just football. And that is a frightening prospect. Combine that with what you said around uh, a debt-free investment. Um, this is this is going to be interesting and, 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 you know, frightening to see next season. Yeah, absolutely. But 
so you know on, on that topic there is one question that i do have like sure they're going to have super rich owners who are going to throw money at every single problem that they face they're going to sign the best players they're going to pay the highest wages they're not they're not they're not really going to give a second thought to anything financial right but the thing is there are already clubs in the premier league who do that manchester city have been doing it for well over a decade chelsea have been doing it for well over two decades even under new ownership they've they're pretty much signing everyone left right and center newcastle themselves have you know come into immense money from the middle east you can be certain that over time they're going to buy the best players pay the highest wages do you really think that even with qatari investment it will be that easy for united to become number 1 again aren't we just at this crucial juncture where pay to play is pretty much rampant right it's it's obvious this could very well be the new top 4 in the coming years but that doesn't mean that united necessarily would be number 1 again that doesn't guarantee them a premier league title the way it has for city over the past many seasons i would almost separate this into two classes the the man cities and chelsea's of the world in one class and maybe the newcastles and the united in in another right and the reason i say that is because if you look at when city were taken over they were in dire straits their their owner was um uh the there was this thai dude who was who was you know um imprisoned for embezzling and so on and and he was basically fudging the books as they are now uh funnily enough um chelsea were bought over in a geopolitical crisis so none of those two clubs um at, were actually taken over by new ownership at a at a at a rising time if you will um on the other hand if you take newcastle um they were bought over by the saudi group just after they had staved off relegation so they were almost in a in a in a in a buoyant state um or 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 they staved off relegation just after uh after after, after the takeover up, yeah. which 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 bodes really well for future years because you know you have the potential there to do it without the investment because there, there was no real investment in the club in the first six months and they managed to pull off an upset and and beat the odds and stay in the premier league it's kind of the same with united you, if you if you look at it they've they've had this they've had what will now be a memorable season right as we've discussed in in much detail um and that is all going to come before qatari ownership or or whoever you know owns the club so um it's going to serve them a lot better than it served the likes of chelsea or man city and it may be a quicker route to dominating english football as i see it um because you know they can do it without the investment and with a good manager and with really negative owners to be honest so they they it's almost like they're pulling them back and they still manage to demonstrate that they can do that they could potentially do a treble and make top 4 now imagine what they could do without any debt from the glazers and punching in a billion dollars over 3 years or something all that talk about how the premier league is now the super league yeah i mean it makes sense right like why wouldn't you uh, why wouldn't you think of it that way but now on the other hand you've got jim ratcliffe who is coming in he he's not of course as uh, financially strong as the qataris he's coming in you know probably having to take loans from multiple sources to buy the club which is of course something that united fans don't want because that's how the glazers came in and riddled 
uh, the club with debt. So, you know, you're kind of doing the same shit, different owner, you know, the same, you're going down that same path again. So a lot of, a lot of supporters are not happy about him being in the running or potentially becoming the new owner. And the biggest topic, I think, between both of these is the same thing that we've discussed with City multiple times in the past, the same thing that we've discussed with Newcastle multiple times in the past is where the money is coming from and how the money is earned. So you've got the older generation of United supporters who want Jim Ratcliffe at the club rather than the Qataris because they don't want money from the Middle East flowing into their club. They'll, they'll be just, you know, they'll pretty much be everything that they've despised about City for the past decade. And then you've got your newer generation of fans who were raised on the Premier League during the City dominance, who've seen how Middle Eastern money can buy you pretty much any player and, you know, buy you championships. And they want that. So fans are pretty evenly split on who they want the new owners to be. So I'm going to, you know, at the end of this whole long-winded, you know, monologue, I'm going to put you on the spot and say... If you were a United supporter, which direction would you want the club to go to? I know it's going to be hard for you to, you know, put put aside your past with Abramovich, but if you were a United supporter, which direction would you go or want to go? I'm glad I'm not because it's a tough choice. Both, in essence, for me, are oil money takeovers, right? Because Jim Ratcliffe's company is no NGO. I mean, they're they're a petrochemical. Yeah, that's true. They're they're a billion dollar petrochemical company. Um, interestingly, the Qataris are bidding for 100% of the club, so they will have sole ownership. They will basically run the club the way they want to. Sir Jim's bid is more directed towards the Glazers' sharehold, as I understand it, right? Which is approximately 69%. So he will be majority owner, but he'll not be the only one. He'll he'll basically just inherit the shares that the Glazers had. Now, the right. magic... In there is that the Glazer shares basically have 10x voting rights. So every share that the Glazers hold, and this is this is where they it was a business masterclass from them back in 2005 when they took over, right? Every every share that the Glazers own has 10 times the amount of voting rights than a normal shareholder. So even though they have 69% of the club, they basically own something like 98% of the voting shares. So which would essentially mean they they make all the decisions. They they run the club. Now, to your point, there's obviously one layer about Middle Eastern ownership versus local ownership. But there's also, to, to kind of counter that, there is the fact that Jim Ratcliffe's bid will or Jim Ratcliffe's takeover will be essentially similar to what the Glazers had. And will United want to go through the same cycle of pain again? Or would they want someone who essentially owns the club outright, is willing to clear all the debt and pump money into the club, into the women's academy, into the uh, into the women's um, stadium, 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 training yeah, ground, training everything, ground under 19s and Old Trafford as well, right? Uh, which 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 is in which is due some redevelopment. Um, it is it is an absolutely tough one. I if if I had to pick today based on the facts, I no, I think I would stay clear of someone who is inheriting the same structure as the Glazers in terms of ownership and would very much want to go in favor of the Qataris. I know there is there are several other political and socialistic aspects to this that 
I'm not considering in this argument and um, but purely from an ownership absolutely. model absolutely from an, from an ownership model and from where united are currently compared to city and other clubs i would want them or as a united fan i would want to be on the quickest path to success and i think the qataris would offer me that that's definitely a, a really interesting and i i have to say really diplomatic take on the situation but uh, yeah i appreciate that and I, I honestly don't know how to react to that because the truth is Liverpool themselves have been going through, you know, the motions of being sold, not being sold, who's been linked. And it's 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 been a difficult time. So I kind of understand the split in the fan base for Manchester United when you've got these two options in front of you, right? But uh, like I said earlier, I mean, this is something that could be wrapped up in the next month. I'm fairly certain when that happens, we're going to have an update on this as well. We'll probably make another episode about it to see what could happen. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I guess time will tell and we'll just have to wait and see how everything uh, unwinds. Well, that's that's it. That's all we've got for you for this episode. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you'll continue listening. If you like what we do, uh, share the word, tell people about us. You can find us on all social media platforms, your Twitter, your Instagram. We don't do TikTok or any of those things. Um, yeah, but you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I don't think Google Podcasts exists anymore, so don't try looking for us there. Stay tuned. We've got uh, more stuff coming out for you. Cheers. Cheers.